Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to The Augment, the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator reading Thucydides in the original Greek. I have no conflicts of interest with any of the authors of any studies we happen to discuss or devices discussed. And I'm Lenny Buller. I work at Indiana University, where we appreciate the outdated classics like Dickens, Dali, and the resurfaced patella. I also have no conflicts of interest with these studies or any of the devices discussed. I'm Mark Mildren. I'm in private practice at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics in Eugene, Oregon. I specialize in putting the tri in triphalange. I also have no conflicts of interest with the authors of these studies or the devices discussed. So tonight our special guest is Dr. Thomas Skolko. In addition to running a busy arthroplasty practice, he is the former Surgeon-in-Chief at Hospital for Special Surgery and the current director of the Complex Joint Reconstruction Center. He's a founding member of the Knee Society, and his countless accolades are notable for being an Arthritis Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award winner and the first American to be elected as an honorary member of the Austrian Orthopedic Society. Beyond his orthopedic accomplishments, Dr. Skolko is a true Renaissance man and a philanthropist. He's also one of the nicest people I know, and his compassion that he demonstrates to patients is truly unparalleled and probably one of the main reasons everybody adores him. For this episode and our series on legends of arthroplasty, we're really hoping to hear from Dr. Skolko's perspective, the transformation of our field over the course of his career, and specifically touching on some of the game-changing advances that he's seen. Before we begin, Dr. Skolko, I'll invite you to present some of your disclosures and also give you the mic for anything you want us to start with. Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me, I'm honored to be included in this group. I certainly been in orthopedic surgery now. I was a resident in the early 70s. So I've seen orthopedics change a lot for the better. And I think we'll have a great conversation talking about that. The only real conflict I have is that I received some royalties from Exact Tech uh, for some work I did on the design of a knee about 15 years ago. But aside from that, really nothing that's going to be relevant. So it's great to be here. And thank you again for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. So before we get into the more technical aspects, I wanted to bring up an interview you did for Columbia Medicine Alumni Magazine, where you claimed you had never met another classics major in orthopedic surgery. So how does it feel to finally meet another orthopedic surgeon classics major in myself? Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> that is impressive. Really, I mean, it's a rare bird in orthopedics or in medicine in general. And I would just say, you know, I, I went to, when I went to college, I was going to be an archaeologist. That was my first love. That's what I wanted to do. And I went to Brown. I grew up in Rhode Island. And when you grow up in Rhode Island, if you do well in high school, you go to Brown. You marry somebody in your high school class, which I did. My brother did. His brother-in-law did. And so I went off to Brown. Not sure what I wanted to do got really taken up with classics and, and archaeology. And I, was, and I had a position, actually, in graduate school in archaeology at Brown. I was going to Athens to dig in the Agora, which was the old marketplace. And I had to take sciences to graduate. It was very regulated when I went to college. 
And I kept taking these biology courses and they were fun and I thought they were interesting. And then I did well in them. And so the chairman of the biology department thought I was a biology major and offered me a job as a teaching assistant. And I said, no, no, I'm a classics major. He said, what are you, what are you crazy? So anyway, I applied to one medical school, which was Columbia, because I thought it might be nice to go to New York. And I signed up for organic chemistry my senior year in college. And it had a five-hour lab on Friday afternoon from one to six. And I hated it. So Columbia invited me down for an interview. I'll never forget about it in the fall of my senior year. And I was really miserable in organic chemistry. And Three days later, after my interview, I get an acceptance. And I'll tell you why. I, I just, you know, I don't want to take the whole conversation here, but it's sort of interesting. So I get accepted to Columbia Medical School. And I hate organic chemistry, so I write a letter to the dean. And the letter states, and this was going to make my decision whether I was going to do archaeology or medicine. I said, is it required that I take organic chemistry? And if he said yes, I was... You want to be an archaeologist and dropping organic chemistry? If he said, no, it's not required, then I was going to go into medicine. That was my decision. So he sends me a letter. He says, dear Mr. Skulko, we highly recommend that you take organic chemistry, but we will not require it. So I immediately that dropped organic chemistry. I'm probably one of the few people in medicine I never took organic chemistry. And then I ended up going to medical school. So I was so grateful that they took a chance on me, that I created scholarships at Columbia and Cornell, the medical schools, for non-science majors. Now, I took seven years of Latin, you know, all the way through high school and college, and then three year, just three years of Greek, because they didn't offer Greek in my high school. So uh, no, th that's a great background. I mean, I, I love it. I read you know, ancient history and classics all the time, and it's really what I do for relaxation. I find it fascinating. Yeah, we should immediately form a club. <laughs> I think so. Classical orthopedists. <laughs> that's but great. with the A, mandatory A yeah, in orthopedics. That's exactly right. <laughs> There's a movement. It's a great story. I, I'm sorry I went a little bit over about the story. but it, that's No, we want to hear. It's great. I mean, I love being able to torture mm -hmm. any residents that work with me with the correct plurals for all the anatomic terms. Absolutely. So that's that's how it manifests for me. But how has a classics background like informed your career or the way you approach patients? Okay, so this is very important because what I tell people is people always say, well, you studied a lot of Latin. I guess it's good for your vocabulary. You went into medicine. You could understand the words. I said, no. What Latin does, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, it teaches you how to think. Now, why am I saying that? Because Cicero will have a sentence that's 50 lines long. The subject will be here, the verb is there, there's 10 clauses, you gotta take it apart and then put it back together again. And that's what medicine is. Medicine is problem solving. You take the data, you take it apart, you put it together and you come up with a solution. So what I tell people is that the intellectual problem solving involved in something like a classical sentence teaches you how to think analytically. And that's what I always found it to be helpful with, how to think and problem solve. Absolutely. I agree. And the other, just from what you said, 
there are different ways to construe the same sentence and multiple books and commentaries can be written based on interpretation of one different participle. And that's totally a parallel in medicine. Right. There's never one right answer. Maybe right. you construe it one way versus another. Both can be right in a different way. So absolutely agree with that as well. I, I, I like that. That's good. I'll use that. <laughs> but I'll quote Go you. for it. All right, nerds. Can we get back to orthopedics? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was fantastic. I find it super fascinating that it was like the decision was either dig up bones or work with bones. And since we decided not to dig up bones, it was become a world-class orthopedist. Right. My classical friends talk to me about that. I always say, well, the bones I work on now bleed. That's the real difference between you guys and me. When I'm digging around bones, they're bleeding. <laughs> if you're digging them up in the dirt, they're not going to bleed. <laughs> Speaking of societies, one of the kind of interesting founding member of the Nee Society. I was wondering if you could just go into a little bit about how did this all start? That's a great question. And the Hip Society had started probably 10 years before, was up and running. And it was actually Ranawat, Chit Ranawat, who contacted about, I guess it was 13 or 14 of us and said, let's meet at the academy and let's talk about forming a knee society. And I was a young guy because we, you know, the, the knee society actually became formalized in 1983. So I don't have been in practice about four or five years. I don't know why he called on me. My office was next door to his. But anyway, he wanted some younger guys there as well. And so we met at the academy, actually in a bar. And we sat down and we banged out the concept. And I can honestly say not everybody who was there was in favor of it. There were some of the old guard who said, oh, we don't need another society, and, and these societies is a misnomer, and you could make an argument to that effect. But the majority of guys thought it was a good idea. And so there were 13 of us, and there's a crazy picture that Larry Dorr had made of us sitting around a round table, like Knights of the Round Table, and those are the founding members. Now, of that number... 13 or 14, or maybe it was 18, only three of us are still working, you know, actively practicing. John Moreland, myself, and David Stolberg. So all the others have retired. You know, a good number of them have passed away now. But that's how it got started. We had a meeting a year later, which was a closed meeting. And the idea of the meeting was that it would be very freewheeling. So you could say anything. You could criticize what anybody said at the meeting, because we're all among colleagues and people with a concentration in knee. And then it grew, and then um, it basically took off from there. The idea was, John Insel was a very big advocate for this. He said, you know, we don't need another academy. We want to keep it small so we can fit in a relatively small venue, so we can all sit at dinner together in a big room, and so that we can have, uh, without hurting anybody's feelings, open dialogue and discussion scientifically at the meeting. So the number that was decided upon was, was 100. That was the original. And it took a while to grow to that number. Uh, you know, we had about 30. We grew to about 30 pretty quick, then 50, then 70, and then to 100. But the idea was to keep it small. Everybody would know everybody, uh, a lot of networking among each other. It was interesting. You would think there would be a lot of collaboration with, let's say, research or something. 
Uh, not a lot. You know, everybody was doing their own thing. And it was a little bit like the Wild West in the early 80s, late 70s, and knee replacement. I mean, a lot of guys were coming out with designs, and there were some crazy designs and some good designs. So it was a lot of shooting from the hip in those days. But that's how it got up and going. And it's um, that way, by the way. The size of it has been debated back and forth. And the active member is still around 100, maybe 110, but it's still fairly small. And kind of along that, you mentioned people were doing designs and all that. One of the questions I have is, what are some designs that you've seen in your career that maybe you thought were going to be big or some, maybe some ideas that you thought were going to be big and then just turned to kind of fizzle out or they turned out to not be really right. anything? That's a good question. So if you go back to the late, you know, we were behind hip, of course. But if you go back to the late 60s, early 70s, in Europe, the big thing was a hinge. So Valdius in, in Scandinavia had a hinge. The French group, Gaypar, had a hinge. And everybody at that point, actually, to a large extent, particularly the European group, felt that a hinge was the way to go. And, you know, I must admit, we looked at the hinge. It looked pretty good. You could fix a lot of different deformities with it. And that was, you know, sort of, it was, it was a lot of interest at that point. But HSS, and really Charlie Townley, who you guys probably, probably none of you guys have ever heard of Charlie Townley. Charlie Townley was a guy in the upper reaches of Michigan who was in private practice and fidgeted with different kinds of things. And he came up with a very good design. The Townley knee was called. And about the same time, we had the condylar knee, the condylar concept, the total condylar. And everything that we did beyond that was based on that original design. It was fine-tuned to the posterior stabilized and it had different high flexion, different iterations of it. But it was, the Conler design is what we became committed to at HSS and what we spent all our time on. And that turned out to be, if you look what's on the marketplace, I mean, the Conler design, there's 35 knees out there. A lot of them look pretty similar. So that was a design that really has held up. There were a lot of crazy designs early on. There was a lot of different kinds of hinges, which were really didn't work at all. Dave Murray, who's a great guy in Syracuse, and, some, and Larry Matthews, who was at the University of Michigan, something called a spherocentric knee, which was this rotating hinge, which was huge. You had to take half the femur, half the tibia to put it in, and all those died off. And uh, the guy who also was really important early on, and you got to give a lot of credit to, although there was a lot of competition and a lot of back and forth with him, was, you know, rest his soul, David Hungerford. David Hungerford from Baltimore. So what David did, all of us, when we did our knees, would do it with like three instruments. It was basically done by hand. We had two sizes, three instruments. And David Hungerford deserves the credit for really improving the instrumentation for knee replacement. And then everybody jumped on that bandwagon subsequently. But David, um, he doesn't get enough credit for it, but he was really a major innovator in design and reproducibility of technique. So do you mind if we talk about it? Because it's super interesting how like knees used to be done when you said, you know, you had three instruments, two sizes. So if you could just kind of really briefly walk us through a knee replacement before standard instrumentation. Yeah, well, I mean, before the standard implementation, you would open the knee, of course. You would have a trial component, 
which originally you sort of held up. And we had two sizes, small and large. And you basically held it up and you freehand cut the different cuts off the femur. And the tibia, of course, there was an instrument that was like a T-handle. And basically you would line it up like we do today and you just cut the bone by hand. And then there was a, a tensioning device for the ligament balancing and it had a block on it and then it just fit into your gaps and had two rods that extended above it so that you aligned it externally with where you thought the femoral head was and the mid part of the ankle. And that was about it. And then you use one size or the other. Now that rapidly progressed rapidly within three to five years. The sizes became more prolific and the instrumentation became better because the technique was not standardized and a lot of it was, and, and guys who were really good uh, surgeons, I mean, were good technically, could take an awful knee and just by freehanding it, was doing an, an amazing job and even without instrumentation. So this was all just eyeball, like you just held up the trial and was like, okay, that cut looks like it should go about there and here we go. That's correct. And once you, you made your cuts and everything, then you just put the trial on to see if it fit properly. And you know, a little more here, a little more there, that kind of stuff. And it was pretty much all by, by eye in the first form. But Hungerford came up with instrumentation and all the companies, all the implants then had instrumentation from there. This is kind of changing subjects a little bit, but what are maybe one or two points in your career that, and this could be, you know, a patient or an interaction with a colleague or just something that you're never going to forget that was either a turning point or just something that this is always stuck in my mind as a major landmark in your career? Yeah, I think one of the big things, what I tell my residents and fellows now, you know, when they graduate, is I say, listen, you make you've got a lot of choices in your life. You've made two great choices. First choice is you're going into orthopedic surgery. Second choice is you're doing arthroplasty. So that's something that I tell my residents. Now, the guy who was very instrumental in my career was Michael Freeman from London. So I spent six months with him and he was a maverick. He was a very creative guy uh, and had brilliant ideas, 20 of them within 15 minutes, you know, he's constantly. And so he taught me a lot. And I, I really credit him with a lot in terms of my career in arthroplasty. And the biggest thing that he taught me that I never forgot was soft tissue balancing. So when we did hinges, you don't have to worry about the ligaments, you just cut it and put a hinge in. When you did, and we didn't fully understand the asymmetry of the soft tissues when we did the condylar knees to begin with. And Michael Freeman was the first one to talk about releasing the tight structures on what he called the concave side of the deformity and equalizing it with a, that one on the convex side. So you were balancing it. And he and I actually wrote a paper about that published in the JBJS in the mid seventies, the first real paper that described soft tissue balancing. So he had a great influence on me, and he had a lot of brilliant ideas. So I credit him with a lot in terms of where my career went from there. It's amazing how much contact you've had with folks around the world. And a lot of surgeons here in the U.S. are so focused on 
the American way of doing things. You actually founded, I think, the International Society of Orthopedic Centers, right? And what difficulties have you seen kind of bridging the gaps, practice differences in orthopedics between Europe and the U.S.? And and how can we be more global in our approach to orthopedics? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Lenny. So I... I don't know, maybe because of my classical background, I've always been a globalist. And so when I finished my residency, one of the things I did is I went to Europe. I got a fellowship from New York Academy of Medicine for clinical study abroad. So I went to Europe for a year. I was in Finland for three months working with a rheumatoid surgeon. I was in London for six months working with Michael Freeman. And then I went on the continent and I worked with Wagner who had a surface replacement at that time. So did Mike Freeman. And so did, and then I went into Italy, where in Bologna, they also had a surface replacement because that was just starting at that point in time. Uh, so I've, now, so what did I learn from that? What you learn is you come with a set principles of what you've been trained with and what you believe is right. But when you see other people, particularly from abroad, do things with a different perspective, Some of it you take, some of it you leave, but it really rounds out how you look at a problem. And I found it tremendously helpful. When I was chief of special surgery, I created a six-week elective for our senior residents. They could go any place in the world. In their fifth year, for six weeks, we would pay for it. You go Indonesia, you go to China, you go any place you want, you know, and just diversify your background. I think it's very powerful, and there's different ways to do it. So I'll give you an example. So the the, the Europeans, you pointed out earlier on, are, are very big in not replacing the patella. So that's one one debate we would always have. They didn't think you need to replace the patella. And I always felt, <laughs> this is sort of crazy, but the British particularly are very stoical people. So we were putting some knees in, and... They were not always put in as good as they should have. And I'll never forget, the British patient would come back and the knee would be in 10 degrees of varus and unstable. And how are you doing, Mr. Jones? Oh, great. And how's your knee? Oh, it's fantastic. I love it. You know, and they walked down the hall and, you know, lateral thrust and unstable. So you got to realize the populations you're talking about, some of them are more forgiving than others. And that goes along with the patella. So I go to Italy and a lot of, you know, visit a lot of centers and a lot of surgeons there. They don't replace the patella. I see patients back in the clinic and there's a little crunching around the patella. And does that hurt? No. Do you have any problem? No. Stairs? No problem. And so if the patients are doing well and not complaining about it, why not? So our school of thought has always been to replace the patella, as you know. I'm not saying you can't, you, you need to do that in every patient. But the beauty of that is if you don't replace some of them and they come back with anterior knee pain, then you're kicking yourself saying, geez, I should have replaced the patella, even though if it was not related to the unreplaced patella. <clears throat> so that was one big difference of opinion. I think the other big difference is they still cement a lot of stuff. If you look at the UK, I think about 50% of the stems and sockets are being cemented and France also. So that was a big difference. You know, in the United States, 95% of the stems now are not cemented. I was going to ask, what was, I'm sorry to interrupt, what yeah. was it like to watch that process happen, to go from cemented to uncemented in the United States? 
Well, I was very skeptical to begin with. You know, all of us were. I mean, cement was working pretty well. I mean, wasn't perfect, but, you know, we had pretty good results. And the early non-cemented, the surfaces were not great. Ingrowth was not always reliable. So we had some bad results when non-cemented first came out. But I think the technology got better and better. And I adopted it. If something is working for me, this is sort of one of my philosophies. If something is working and my results are good, I'm not going to be the first one to change. You know, if something else comes along, I'll look at it, evaluate it. And then if I'm having an issue where I think that new implant could be helpful, then I'll switch to the other one. But I like to see three to five years experience for the most part. And then the non-cemented got better and better. And, you know, I was involved with some of the designs of the early ones. And we had our issues, but I think technology today, the non-cemented, in growth of bone is really not a problem. If you look at implants today, failure due to lack of osseous integration is a rare bird, in my experience. I mean, and you can use a lot of different designs and you'll get good in-growth. Speaking about different designs and maybe preferences and all that, what is the best argument you've been in with a, either a colleague or someone that's not a colleague? And did you win? <laughs> well, when I get involved with these debates, I think the biggest debates we always have with a colleague uh, are like CCJR was great for that. And you guys all know about CCJR. And the debates there were always very lively. And so I debated a lot of people, unicompartmental versus total condler. So I debated Dave Murray from England. I debated, you know, Jerry Eng was another unicompartmental guy. And I held my own, I think, in most of these debates. I like debates. I think they really open up a lot of discussion. They're fun to do. And in the end, there's probably not necessarily a totally right answer. Each person gives their opinion. The data will stack up depending upon what papers you quote. But I mean, the, the hardest debater I ever went up against, so maybe that's a, a better thing to answer for you. The hardest debater I ever up went up against was Michael Freeman, the British knee surgeon I was just talking about before. Michael was brilliant. And Michael had a way with the English language where he could decimate you and you did not even realize it happened. And he did it in a very polite, nice way and made you look like an idiot. So I would say of all the people I ever debated, I never want to debate against Michael Freeman. I can honestly say that. And he could talk his way out of anything. Michael, this knee is a disaster. Well, wait, Pum. If you're not really, if you really look at it from this side or that side or this side, it's really very good. So Michael was unbelievable. The debates are fun. I mean, I thoroughly enjoy them. It's people like Lombardi, uh, Adolf. He's always fun to debate because you know he he ha he always has a very jocular way of doing it. He, he doesn't. Some guys get offended. You got to be careful. You know, some guys if you. Uh, you know, you don't want to embarrass somebody in a debate. That's the worst thing you can do. You want to have some fun. You want to make your points. But some guys take it very personally, and I, I don't take it personally. Uh, you know, I've been doing this long enough, so I got pretty thick skin. So we'll switch gears a little bit. I, we got a lot of young listeners coming up, and we'd all really like to get your perspective on the future of orthopedics. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of a two-parter. I want to know a little bit more about what excites you, 
the most about orthopedics in the next decade? And also, what's maybe one thing that you are the most afraid of about the trajectory of orthopedics? What do you think? Where are we going off track? Right. And by a lot of listeners, he means like all of four people listening. Yeah. Uh, all right. I was going to say, now's your chance to be the Oracle of Delphi for orthopedics. So I expect you to answer this all in riddles. <laughs> well, I think the biggest threat, let's start with that. I mean, there are threats out there in orthopedic surgery and I think in arthroplasty in general. And I think the, the biggest threats are really things like reimbursement. I mean, where we are in terms of being paid for what we do is really going to compromise the independence of a lot of arthroplasty surgeons in the future. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that in order to be a freestanding arthroplasty surgeon, even in an academic center, it's going to be more and more difficult. And more and more people are going to have to be full-time. Those of us from my generation were always fiercely independent. We did not want to work for the hospital. We wanted to work as a group for ourselves and what we did. Of course, the hospital was important, but we were not employees of the hospital. And I'm concerned for the future. You know, 70% of doctors now are hospital employed. I hate to see that happen in orthopedics, but I think the way the economics of it are going, it's going to be harder and harder not to sort of be a full-time surgeon. So I think... And why is that not a good thing? It really stifles some of the things that you can do when you're sort of on your own in terms of creativity. The hospital owns you, so they can dictate this or that. And independence, I think, is going to be a problem for orthopedic surgeons in the future and arthroplasty surgeons. What excites me, having said that, that's the downside. On the upside is I think our field is wide open in terms of research capability, in terms of continuing to improve what we do in terms of the quality of the results that we get, the unbelievable satisfaction. I mean, every, every time I, I'm in my clinic, a patient will come in and say, you know, Dr. Skolko, you really changed my life. Okay. Now that is a powerful sentence and there's not many professions that people say that. So that's the upbeat. Uh, that's the really the, the important thing about what we do. I mean, you really change people's lives. That's not going to change. That's the exciting part of what we do. And that lasting gratitude and bond of trust between a patient and surgeon, particularly in what we do, arthroplasty, is unique uh, and really binds us and, and is a powerful thing. That's not going to change. In terms of research, there's so many unanswered questions in orthopedics. We are a little bit behind some of the other medical specialties in terms of some of the basic science we do. And I think that that's exciting. There's lots of fracture healing, what happens to bone around implants, infection. I mean, there's so many unanswered questions in terms of what we do that I think the future is very bright and it's exciting. Now, having said that, the other thing you got to ask yourself, and I give a talk about new technology, can we afford it? And so one of the things we're going to be asked more and more to look at is cost effectiveness. So if you can document that 90%, 95, let's say 90% of your surgeries 
are successful. And new technology comes along that's very expensive. In this day and age of bundle payments and reimbursements, you're going to have to demonstrate that that new technology really makes a difference in terms of it being utilized. And so that's a challenge in our specialty. And I don't know where that's going to go. What do I mean by that? Well, if you take the robot, okay, the robot is hot as can be right now. We've got five robots, I think, now in HSS. When you do the procedure, you need somebody in there to sort of run it. Even the guys who are really good at it, it takes a little bit longer to do. So, I mean, if we really get into financial difficulties with healthcare, I mean, some of those things are going to be under duress. And it's going to threaten some of the new technology in terms of what we do. That's a great answer. Our outcomes are clearly excellent in arthroplasty, and and it's hard to get much better. So dual mobility um, is an interesting concept. As you know, when a patient has a dislocation, it's a traumatic thing. I mean, they're unhappy. You're unhappy. Uh, A lot of times the x-rays look fine. Something didn't go right. And so dislocation is a problem in hip replacement. I think it's less of a problem today than it was previously. But that's why I started doing dual mobilities 10 years ago when they first became available. I thought that was an interesting concept that had a history in France and had a history actually of a couple of surgeons in Europe that I knew and visited. And I thought it was a great concept. So I started doing dual mobilities in high risk primaries. And I do what's called the ADM, which is an anatomic dual mobility, which is a monoblock. I'm not crazy about, about putting dissimilar metals together. So if you have a modular, an MDM, right? Modular dual mobility, you got a titanium shell and then a cobalt chrome interface in your dual mobility for the modular system. So this is a cobalt chrome shell that I put in and in the dual mobility polyethylene fits against that. So I've done about a thousand of them. We're going to report them. I've got a midterm follow-up. And they've worked extremely well. So I think dual mobility for the high-risk primary, I'll define that in a minute, is a very reasonable way to go. And I use 30, I never use a head bigger than 36, but I use 36 millimeter heads in just about everybody. And I be honest with you, I've not had a dislocation probably in two or three years. So I think that system works well. Now, who's a high-risk person? So Older people, just as they lose their sense of balance when they walk, their proprioception is not great. And particularly older females, very thin, aesthetic females, they don't always have a great sense of proprioception and they dislocate their hips and they're very flexible. So in that population, I use a dual mobility as my primary. And it literally eliminates dislocation as a problem. So I think that's a very good way to go. I like, thus far, I have seen few problems with dual mobility. You, know, you have the interprosthetic dislocation thing. We've had a few of those, but that's a relatively rare event. So I think dual mobility is a good thing. And I think it's good in revisions. And I use it pretty routinely in revision hips. And I use the ADM, the monoblock dual mobility, and a lot of my high. You know, you get somebody who's got Parkinson's disease, ADM, I put them in. You got somebody who's 85 years old, unstable, you know, has poor balance, I put an ADM in. And I don't have to worry about them getting called in the middle of the night that they're dislocated. So I believe in that concept. 
Are there any patients that you will not use a dual mobility on? Like any contraindications as far as age, weight? Good question. Not really. I mean, I don't like putting it in young patients because I just don't know what the long term is going to be. So I get a 50-year-old person, I'm going to probably not put that in. But anybody over 70, I have, you know, pretty much no contraindications to it. I think if the bone quality is really poor, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a press fit and, you know, you got to get a good bond. So if it looks like I can't get a good press fit, maybe that group. But aside from that, rarely do I back off from doing it if I, you know, I'm going to do it. What about in primary total hips in the setting of a femoral neck fracture? Yeah, I do it routinely. Oh, yeah, no. I get a femoral neck, displaced femoral neck fracture. I don't do a bipolar. I do a dual mobility, and I give them a total hip, cement the femur. I think the quality of the arthroplasty, that way I don't have to worry about dislocation, dual mobility. Dislocation rate can be up to 10% in femoral neck fractures. So you put the dual mobility in, it eliminates that complication, cement the femur, because most of them have bad bone, and it takes 10 minutes more than doing a bipolar. I mean, to me, that's a no-brainer. That's my primary treatment. For, now, I don't do a lot of them. We, you know, we have a trauma service, and I get to revise all the bipolars, convert them to total hips. <laughs> now, why would you put a bipolar in a 55, 60-year-old patient? I mean, you know, but I see them, and they hurt. You know, those people have a lot of groin pain. I think what we do, guys, we're so fortunate in that what we do is so interesting, and as I said before, so gratifying. And it's an unbelievable specialty. And, you know, it's not like work. I mean, that's why I'm still working. You know, I'm not going to tell you my age, but I'm, I'm still working, doing 300 cases a year. And I love doing what I'm doing. Thank you to Dr. Skolko for joining us. And make sure you visit the Young Arthroplasty Group website on aahks.org for information on how to join YAG and AUKUS, a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.